Good afternoon, or actually, good night. This is MC on the radio with Sharon. And Hello. You're, you're listening to Hawker Theory. And Welcome. Yay. <laughs> this week is a special week. If you listen to PRB regularly, you will know that this is our drive week. This is the time where PRB is reaching out to the community and asking for your support to help us keep doing radio, keep doing independent radio, as it has been since its inception. If you don't know, PRB is the oldest college radio in the United States, and it is totally independent. We are not owned by any major corporation, and we are funded by the community, by our listeners, by you guys. So we want to say thank you so much to, to you for tuning in. And uh, we also want to pitch our drive. If you go to the website, uh, oh my God, what is the website? WPRB's <sighs> website? It is WPRB.com. Pledge.WPRB.com. Yes. So pledge, P L E D G E dot WPRB.com. You can choose to donate to PRB over a monthly or a one-time. So the one-time would be like, oh, here's a one-time donation. And then for the monthly, I like to think about it kind of like as a, like a Shopify, Shopify, a Spotify subscription type thing. Mm-hmm. So like you subscribe to all of these like outlets like New York Times, Spotify, Hulu. Um, so it would be a similar thing and you'd be giving us your support monthly. And uh, for us, it's, it's so important to be able to get this community support so that we can keep doing PRB um, the way that we always do with our local DJs, with our student DJs, and um, just keep the radio going. It's been a really, really hard year uh, for the pandemic, especially if you're not involved in selling vaccines or <laughs> ad time. And we don't, PRB is fully, fully, fully supported by um, the community. So we would really, really appreciate if you appreciate our content, you could um, help us keep going. Um, this is a, I mean, WPRB is a very important and historic radio MC, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the oldest college radio in the U.S. And we, the, the motto of the unofficial motto of PRB is music you can't usually hear on the radio. Mm -hmm. So we go totally against the usual like pop hits that you can, you can listen to whenever you, you turn on the radio. We have content like Hot Growth Theory that I don't really see that in, I definitely do Other not channel. see that on regular radio. Yeah. We are bringing you podcasts to radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Plus We're totally, yeah. hot girl playlists. <laughs> exactly. We're totally nonprofit. And we were um very we were, we were very lucky that even during COVID we were able to stay on air. Um, there were a lot of radio stations that unfortunately had to close, mm-hmm. which just opens more airtime for all these other corporations or like major players so if you appreciate us um our work definitely head to pledge.wpib.com and then there's another smaller reason to pledge monthly is because monthly donations are what um keep us going in the long term it's nice to have the one time but the monthly will help us stay in the air in the long run and it also gets you a free wpib t-shirt which is only available for monthly donors so if you head to our website you can enter your address and we'll send you the exclusive wprb t-shirt i i can't show it to you because it's audio but it's pretty (laughs) imagine imagine what it looks like (laughs) or check it out on the website i don't know exactly (laughs) and 
we wanted to preface um, or just explain a little bit why independent media is so important in the vein of Hakuro theory. We love talking about theory. And yes. just read some excerpts uh, from uh, um, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent, which came out in the 90s. And it explains a little bit about the history of U.S. media, why we have so few conglomerates controlling so much of the local and national news that we see. Mm -hmm. and Which honestly could, will probably only get worse as <laughs> small businesses suffer from exactly. COVID and, and just general globalization and monopolization of the media. <laughs> exactly. So we're fighting to stop that or we're just trying with our little podcast. <laughs> fighting a good fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let me, yeah, let me read a little bit from uh, the words of Noam Chomsky. And Edward um, Herman. And Poor Edward, Edward Herman always gets like always forgotten. Always overshadowed. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. Also, if I'm sniffling for listeners today, it's because I'm I don't know slightly under the weather. I think maybe I have allergies. Anyways, <laughs> the mass media serve as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace. It is their function to amuse, entertain, and inform, and to inculcate individuals with values, beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structures of a larger society. In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interests, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. In countries where the levers of power are in the hands of a state bureaucracy, the monopol monopolistic control of the media, often supp supplemented by official censorship, makes it clear that the media serves the end of a dominant elite. It is much more difficult to see a propaganda system at work where the media are private and formal censorship is absent. This is especially true where the media actively compete, periodically attack, and expose corporate and governmental malfeasance, and aggressively portray them as spokesmen for free speech and the general community interest. What is not evident and remains undiscussed in the media is the limited nature of the of such critiques as well as the huge inequality in command of resources and its effect on both affects both on access to private media systems and on its behavior and performance a propaganda model focuses on this inequality of wealth and power and its multi-level effects on mass media interests and choices it traces the routes by which money and power are able to filter out the news fit to print marginalized dissent, and allow the government and dominant private interests to get their messages across to the public. The essential ingredients of our propaganda model or set or a set of new quote-unquote filters fall under the following headings. One, the size, concentrated ownership, owner wealth, and profit orientation of the dominant mass media firms, uh, advertising as the primary income source of the media, the reliance of media on on information provided by government, business, and experts funded and approved by these primary sources and agents of power, flack as a meaning of disciplining the media, and anti-communism as a national religion and control mechanism. These elements interact with and reinforce one another. The raw material of news must pass through successive filters leaving only the cleansed residue fit to print. They fix the premises of discourse and interpretation and the definition of what is newsworthy in the first place, and they explain the basis and operations of what amounts to propaganda campaigns. The elite domination of the media and the marginalization of dissidents that results from the operation of these filters occurs so naturally that media news people frequently operating with complete integrity and goodwill are able to convince themselves that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news value. 
within the limits of the filter constraints that they are they often are objected. These the constraints are so powerful and are built into the system in such a fundamental way that alternative bases of news choices are hardly imaginable. In assessing the newsworthiness of the U.S. government's urgent claims of the shipment of MIGs to Nicaragua in, gov in November 5th, 1984, the media do not stop to ponder the bias that is inherent in the priority assigned to government-supplied raw materials or the possibility that the government might be manipulating the news, imposing its own agenda, and deliberately diverting the attention from other material. It requires a macro alongside a micro, story-by-story -story view of media operations see the pattern of manipulation and systematic bias. So that was an excerpt from Manufacturing Consent by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in the vein of theory, we really like to investigate the whys of why we do things. And exactly. I guess it's the reason why we do Hako theory as well. Yeah, just creating a plethora of voices for people to listen to a plethora of ideas in and of itself is already a great thing valuable on its own mm -hmm. but i guess enough about prb um <laughs> that was an aside what are we here to talk about today sharon we are here to talk about wait first let me plug in my computer we're here to talk about desirability politics politics of beauty um skin bleaching <laughs> the cosmetic industry and all of those related items <laughs> You know, it's time we talked about why we, um, or just like deconstruct the hot in hot girl theory. <laughs> and what's the baggage that comes with? Hello. That comes with that. Okay. <laughs> so what is, um, what are some of the readings that we did this week? Great. Um, so like I was saying, we're here to talk about Societal perceptions of beauty, how they affect people's day-to-day -day lives and the ways that they're manifested both through cosmetic practices that are external, like, I don't know, you know, doing makeup, et cetera, et cetera, or I don't know, straightening your hair, mm -hmm. um, and ways that are heavily internalized and sometimes not, and, and are permanent through things like cosmetic surgery, skin bleaching, all of the like, <laughs> all things that fall under that umbrella. Um, but I kind of wanted us to start by talking about just skin bleaching itself and the practice and history of it, um, as well as we'll get into a couple of readings, which of course will be linked in the show notes if you watch or listen from our Spotify account. Um, so skin bleaching as a practice is widely <laughs> practiced actually throughout a lot of the global South. Mm -hmm. um it can it can involve a lot of different um chemicals <laughs> a lot i think that different countries of origin their own skin bleaching products have a lot of different various chemicals that they use um i think for many of the products a lot of the bases include hydroquinine mercury lead mm -hmm. etc some of the very toxic metals um which can be which can leave a lot of permanent damage on the skin um, but the overall gain, or the overall aim, as the product name indicates, is just to lighten your skin. For a lot of these products, they'll have names like Fair and Lovely, mm. or like Fair Glow, things like that. Um, and they're widely available at most, they'll, they'll be widely available at most beauty shops. Um, pharmacies. 
in pharmacies, yeah. They're just sold along, uh, like, behind, not behind the counter, over the counter, which is the one that you can just grab. <laughs> yeah, over yeah. Over the counter? Oh, behi- mm, just over the counter? Yeah, over the counter, yeah. And what are, so what is the, I guess, the, like, historical context? Like, has this always been a practice, or is this something that is, um, has been popularized in the past, like, 50, 100, 200 years? So the history of skin bleaching products goes back to, like, BCE. But I think in those days, for example, they were used in Egypt and things like that products had lead and were used to like create a whiter face bce Um, bce and i think for me what is uh still a question for me is like kind of what was the point Mm -hmm. um i think for many societies especially earlier on if you're a person who doesn't have to work outside then your skin is lighter Mm -hmm. and so that could be a huge uh, motivation as to why a lot of people wanted to use skin lighteners but a lot of the recent emergence of skin bleaching products has been post-colonial, actually. Um, since, like, the 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. Um, after colonial, <laughs> like, since after England and a lot of other European, Western European countries invaded um, the Global South quite generally and left those countries... Um, there was the creation of this kind of middle class amongst the global south, or a petite, a petite bourgeoisie mm-hmm. almost amongst the the these global southern countries, um, and so for those who are in the middle class in those uh, in the global south, kind of to give the appearance of an aspiration or inclusion in the bourgeoisie itself there was any attempt to be made to like just get close and be acclimated to Western culture and Western um, aesthetics, <laughs> ways of looking, whether that's wearing the clothes, eating only like Western foods. And along with that, where there's also just like thinking about just bleaching your skin and trying to appear whiter. And it also seems that it has also historically just like mostly affected women in the sense that because it plays into the politics of like desirability and marriage and just being i guess like that's how your value is measured in a society right your beauty as a woman who is expected to marry and uh produce children um that that becomes like a realm specifically like engaged in like the politics of like beauty um sexual desire and and gender yeah um In one of the readings that I will link in our discussion called Buying Racial Capital, Skin Bleaching and the Cosmetic Surgery in a Globalized World, they address how um, they address how women's beauty becomes their capital. For a lot of men, their capital is having a beautiful woman. But for a woman, your only capital is just like being pretty and the body that you exist in um so let me see let me pull out a couple quotes here that i think really kind of underscore some of the um, the reasoning behind um why skin bleaching especially is particularly common amongst women although it is present a lot of times also for men Mm -hmm. 
The broad reach of global white supremacy has not stopped the billion-dollar industry of skin-whitening products, but in fact extends into the manipulation of the entire body. White skin bleaching is notably less common in the United States than in other countries. People of the U.S., people of color in the U.S. are much less likely to, are much more likely to go under the knife to reshape their bodies, often in ways that anglicize their facial features and body types. The cosmetic surgery industry sells racial capital as well, in the forms of Anglo noses, Anglo eyes, and more. And more. Racial capital can be purchased this way, although the prices are higher and the risks more dangerous. The, in the United States, cosmetic surgery is becoming an increasingly mainstream and normal part of the culture. The ability to purchase racial capital is a relatively new phenomenon, built upon shifting culture, cultural norms regarding the manipulation of the body. The global cosmetic industry has helped shift the cultural norms in this regard. With the advent of cosmetic surgery and constant mass marketing of cosmetic surgery procedures through TV shows, advertisements, and celebrities, people in many countries are open to changing their body shape. People now increasingly see the human body as yet one more object that can be manipulated or fashioned for, or manipulated for fashion or for status. Many people of color describe their desire for new facial features not as wanting to look white, but just wanting to look pretty, quote unquote. Trade publications help to lay, lay, to fear, lay to rest the fears that patients of color are trying to look white by purchasing particular cosmetic procedures. In fact, patients of color are purchasing a racial capital through these procedures that they calculate will give them an advantage in the job market, the marriage market, or both. The following quotations from the websites of leading cosmetic surgeons and women's magazines are examples of racial maneuvering in the, in the, market, uh, in the marketing of cosmetic surgery. And I'll read one of the, the um, quotes that they put in here. Um, Typically, there are requests from African-American women for thinner noses more often than other procedures. Cosmetic surgery is about enhancement, not changing who you are. It is a, not a need, but it is truly about enhancing the beauty that black women already have. So that's, so an, ad. This, that's an ad. This is like a quote from mm. a doctor. <laughs> As to why, like, what are some of the, the cosmetic procedures that people usually get? And we'll get a little bit more into cosmetic surgery later, I'm sure. But, get, like, what are the cosmetic procedures people usually get and why? Um, and for a lot of these quotes, um, there's, as the article says, there's, like, a maneuvering that is done. They will oftentimes say, you should be able to get uh, a cosmetic surgery because, um, for example, it, it's a way to treat yourself or something like that, or it's like a way to reward yourself now that you have, you're in a, a social status so that you actually have... Because it's expensive. The, it's like a... It's, like a, it's, something, it's that, something that... It's like a bonus, like a that, bonus comes that comes when you, comes achieve, you a achieve a certain mobility. mobility. Exactly. It's a, and as you said, it's a reward to for achieving a certain amount of mobility, but also it's a way of providing you an opportunity. I think for a lot of people who are getting these surgeries, it's a way of providing an opportunity to get even more mobility mm -hmm. because yeah. I think for a lot of people who are getting cosmetic surgery these days and who are using skin bleach bleachers, skin whiteners, uh, you're attempting to look very racially ambiguous. Um, although a lot of the quotes that they, they use in here, it's like doctors will be like, no, no, <laughs> they're not attempting to look White. like not black. They're not attempting to look, not Asian or something by like doing eyelid surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're just attempting to look pretty. pretty. <laughs> and it's like, so what are we, what are we aiming to do? 
or like what are we aiming for it's interesting because um in one of those articles she talks about like yeah like this like she talks a lot about the supply side it's like they obviously want to sell they want to make money (laughs) um and then in the in the consumer side it's like i want to be pretty i want to get those things but if you think about it like we always talk like oh there's like this whole discourse of like oh you have to like be comfortable in your own skin it's all about the confidence blah, blah blah but you can't ignore the fact that like i don't know if you're if you're listening to this and you're pretty like maybe I, I it's hard to you know it's hard to live in someone else's experience but like people will treat you better if they perceive you a certain way and just by coincidence the people who who like will the people who are in power who will give you a job who will get you um who will interview you who um will like just I don't know just anybody in a position of power that you need to appease they usually tend to be um they usually tend to be white in america they tend to be wealthy and so you like you don't have it's not that you don't have a choice but it it does make sense like i would definitely if that's what it took for me to get this job if this is what it took for me to leave my abusive family and for me to get like a good marriage um so i can like be perceived as having a higher status or have a more comfortable life and this is what i need to do it doesn't seem like a very high price to pay exactly um yeah (laughs) i i one thing maybe we can get to that later in terms of like what are the long-term effects but i definitely 100 percent agree um and there's so many examples honestly i think i didn't we didn't come to thinking about this topic in in review of current events necessarily but i feel like every week there's current events that talk about or touch on the beauty of politics and also just like pretty privileged, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, like, um, there's one artist that I really like named Ari Lennox. (laughs) I Mm. think one of her songs is included in our playlist for today. Um, But she, she's like, she's a black woman. She's not like particularly large or anything. She usually used to wear her natural hair out and about. Um, She's just like, Honestly, I thought she was really pretty, but maybe other people thought she was average. (laughs) Um, But in the recent months, like, I think going into 2021, she just started going on this, like, weight loss journey. She wears a lot more, like, straight wigs. She does a lot more makeup and things like this. And before she was doing this, there was a lot of commentary around her features. Um, She has a pretty wide-set nose, which is very typical for a lot of African-American women. But... At some point in 2021, somebody said she looked like a Rottweiler or something like that, like I somewhere on Twitter. And also in 2020, I think Snoop Dogg also said that she was like bald or had, I don't know, nappy hair or something because she wore a wig one time and he was like, oh, if you're not bald, like why would you do all of that, et cetera, et cetera. And even this past week, there has been so much hubbub. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the hubbub around Khloe Kardashian, because uh, an old photo of her, like, pre-cosmetic surgeries, mm-hmm. I think her doctor posted it on online, and then she had them remove it, but other people had already seen it and were, like, reposting it everywhere. And so she's been on, like, this wild goose chase to, like, whack-a-mole, all these accounts <laughs> that have put <laughs> put that picture up, and now she's, you know, bemoaning, like, all the beauty, the Western beauty standards and American beauty standards and how tough it is to, like, keep up 
this appearance, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. When, honestly, it's like her family is one of the, the, the biggest perpetuators of these completely unrealistic beauty standards. And why, like, why are you ashamed to have your photo up? It's because you know those are not realistic. <laughs> the way that you look now is not a realistic way for someone to look. I think it, it kind of, like, starts the unraveling of, like, wait, 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 wait. Like, the, it, it's, like, people will, like, praise cosmetic surgery, but in the end, it's always, like, no, like, the, the value of beauty is inherent, and, like, she was born with it, and, like, she comes to get all these achievements, like, all this praise, but once you realize that it's directly tied to your access to money and power, then it becomes a little bit more complicated because you're, like, why wh- why do i see what is beautiful as beautiful like why where did i learn that yes i i read an article i think a long time ago or maybe i don't know if it was an article or something but it's just like why called why you will never be pretty and part of it is like you said what is defined as pretty is pretty much defined as what is inaccessible that it's only accessible to people who have the money to afford a luxury lifestyle um, to afford these cosmetic surgeries, to afford um, a nice house, things like that, really expensive clothing. And so therefore you as an average person will never be quote unquote pretty because the whole construction of beauty is around things that are only accessible to a couple people. Interesting. There are, I have seen like um, threads and people talking about abolishing the concept of beauty i mean everyone's like abolish this abolish that and it's hard for you to just get rid of a concept because it's like we like we use we rely on beauty to to make so many decisions and like who are we attracted to um what are we gonna wear today like how am i gonna put makeup on my face or not put makeup on my face um how am i gonna take care of my body like definitely like the peer pressure around like skin beauty is what got me to like moisturize my skin more but i'm actually glad that it did because my skin is hydrated and it makes me think of when I was a kid. My dad used to say this a lot to me. He would be like, "Beauty is not, um, beauty is not about having certain features. Beauty is about health. It's about being healthy." And I think there's a lot to deconstruct there because I don't 100% agree with what he said. But I think there is um, some like uh, truth in the sense that like um, what we. I guess what we perceive as healthy is also very like codified, right? It's like racialized. It's gen- there's like a lot of like gender or like sexual like um, baggage that care is carried by the term health. Um, but the idea of having like clear skin, of smelling good, of being clean, um, I think a lot of that also gets mixed in. And so it's really hard for you to separate like concepts of beauty with concepts of like just like medicine and like science and like what we perceive as like a good human being but then also all of these like societal norms of power whiteness um and so you can't just i I think it's hard to make a sweeping statement like beauty good beauty bad it's more like what what are what are the things that we're using to define it because i don't i don't know like when we i don't know overcome when we get over trying to look like anglo-saxon white people we, we do have to, we are going to end up creating a new beauty standard or not. Yeah. I, I feel know. like even right now we're moving toward, we're moving out of a beauty standard that is like, um, Anglo-Saxon white. And maybe this is also just like beauty stuff. It's like larger beauty standards in terms of at least like if you think about American society, the larger beauty standard of like white American or I don't know. Yeah. European descended American 
has and still is the beauty standard quite widely and in terms of desirability that is a standard quite widely but in recent years there's also like this move towards the ethnically ambiguous look and so even for a lot of white people like the kardashian family i feel like now there is such a emphasis on like having a curvy figure which is not really typical of white Americans, if I might say so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And are even things like having a the fox eye look, which I feel like is leaning more towards like an Asian yeah. aesthetic or East Asian aesthetic. So it's very interesting just to think about, like we can, you know, abolish a beauty standard, but some other beauty standard that is equally as like only a, a t- a, pertains to like 10% or, or of the people in the world or like etc uh, to the people in the society and is equally inaccessible will come to replace it interesting that is true The there was this TikTok about this girl who was like um, oh a lot of people like make fun of me for looking um, like Kylie Jenner and she's I think she's like South Asian or like mixed and she was like no like Kylie Jenner looks like me because she bought her face and I am now, like, I think it was this other girl, maybe. She was like, I'm now being perceived as white. Because, like, the Kardashians, everyone understands they're white. And she's like, I am not white. I am Middle Eastern. Or, like, I, my family come, I think she was from North Africa. And she was like, like, now I get to be perceived as white. And I get to, I guess, get the privileges the that privileges. people mm-hmm. get when they're treated because that way because they're pretty. But it's it's this is a result of the like fetishization of my features yeah precisely which is really interesting it's like yes you win but you don't (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) because it's like people aren't really people don't like you for you they like you because now you're included in the in group Yeah. yeah yeah so yeah you do win but also it's not because necessarily anything about you and I think this also goes to, like, extend the definition of, like, cosmetic, like, improvements, not just skin bleaching and actual cosmetic surgery. But I like, think about, like, how now everyone communicates online. So it's all about filters and how, you, yeah, how, how you, like, manipulate your photos, which is really interesting because it, it, it's not a permanent change in your body. But maintaining that illusion is so important. Read the example of Khloe Kardashian. It's interesting, like, talking, thinking about filters also because... I had read an article also a while ago. I think that was from cosmetic surgeons who were saying now because a lot of people view themselves um, through these filters, like on Snapchat or on Instagram and things like that, they become so accustomed to the way that they look with the filter on them that when they look at themselves normally, they're Mm. disappointed. And people will go then to their cosmetic surgeons and be like, I want you to change my face and give me cosmetic surgery so that I can look more like the filter that I've put on, which is quite interesting because then it's like, you're not even really actually attempting to look like anyone in particular. You're just attempting to look edited, which is, I don't know. I feel like that's just kind of fascinating. It it is true that like, if you look at celebrities when they, like, start their career and then, like, 10 years in when they're really successful, their faces kind of seem to, like, meld. Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. look very similar. Um, but it is interesting to think of, like, why do, like, where do people learn this behavior, right? Like, where do they learn that this is good, this is bad? Um, 
I think a lot of it does have to do with like just general like interpersonal relationships because like at least when I was growing up before like I guess I saw magazine ads but I didn't really watch TV so I didn't have that much um, exposure but like I, I guess maybe they they the few magazine ads I saw were enough for me to like internalize these um, these beauty standards but it's really interesting to see how like for example Ari Lennox now like everyone's like retweeting her and being like oh you look so good yeah, you look everyone's so beautiful. like she's so beautiful yada yada and I feel like she she looked beautiful before right. and it's not to say that I don't know I feel like these types of topics also have to be done with a grain of salt because it's your body it's your choice like you literally can do with it what you want um but it makes me it saddens me when people think that they need to alter their body in any way to be beautiful to be beautiful and gain just the privileges that come with it i don't know i i like i think everything that we consider good or desirable as you said it's because of exclusivity or it's because it gets you access to something it like is beneficial to you in some way <laughs> covid really taught me that i really wasn't dressing for myself i was dressing for everyone else like <laughs> I was in sweats for a whole year and, and and that's fine like fashion it's totally fine yeah like that fashion is powerful in many ways and it, and like we are social beings but it's it's important to yeah to like understand that like it's an individual like mentality like this is something you internalize but it's also imposed or something that you don't really have control over at the same time precisely yeah um you said you had done some readings on like the cosmetic industry and pharmaceutical oh, yeah. industry and how beauty is baked into that as well. Do you yes. want to talk a bit about that? Um, I guess now we can talk a little bit about the supply side because we talked yeah. about like the individual side, like how this, how people, like how people think and like the thought process. But it's kind of this chicken and the egg, like what comes first, who enforces what? Um, would my life be that much better if I had never seen a Vogue spread? Maybe. um but you also have to think about who's driving that and why it's so important to have people unhappy with their bodies because it's profitable it's it's it it's what drives the makeup industry it's what drives the fashion industry and it's what drives pharmaceuticals and medicine um i don't know like if you look at like who makes the most money amongst all the types of doctors plastic surgeons are number one and uh here, let me do a little report. So I went digging to be like, okay, so how, if you're like a business person, you know, like you're like cold attached, you're not thinking about the politics, like what are you thinking about these like skin bleaching products? Because if you, if you like look at who's selling these products, it's not like people who like go home and like, you know, mix some things up and present sell it in the market. It's like Avon it's Laurel, it's Procter & Gamble, it's Unilever. It's like all these major corporations who are all headed by Europeans, by Americans, by white people. So what's in it for them? So I found this trend report. If you meet a consultant, I did not know what a consultant was. I didn't know what consulting like did, what use uh, it was for. And basically what they do is they compile a lot of data to help corporations decide what to do next so they're like we um scoured the internet and the world we did research and field research and the purpose of this research so think of like academia they do the purpose of they have research to like i don't know for knowledge consultants they will do research so they can help you make more money and so i found this report and it's it's like 500 pages and you have to pay like four thousand dollars to access it 
Um, and it was compiled by this um, by these uh, consultants. And it's called Global Skin Lightning Products Market is expected to reach um, 8,000 million. So like 8 billion by 2026. Yeah. And I'm just going to read some ex- excerpts from it. So... Some of the key players profiled in the skin lightening products market include VLCC Healthcare Limited, Unilever, Shiseido, Procter and Gabe, and Gamble, L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, blah, blah blah. Increasing consumer consciousness in regards to their physical appearance and rising demand for skincare products, especially based on natural and organic ingredients, are some of the factors fueling the market growth. However, government regulations on the product are one of the restraining factors for the market. Moreover, lifestyle changes coupled with increasing disposable income and provi- is providing ample opportunities for market, mar- uh, market growth. Skin lightening products include synthetic and natural products that help the skin tone and g- help the skin tone and gives an even skin appearance by lessening the melanin content in the skin. Skin lightening pro- products are accessible in the market in various forms such as scrubs, cleansers, toners, etc. Based on the product, cream and lotion set based on the product cream and lotion segment, is likely to have a huge demand due to the rising importance of natural ingredients that help to avoid skin dryness and to improve skin quality. By geography, Asia-Pacific is going to have a lucrative growth during the forecast period due to the increasing grooming awareness among individuals, coupled with the increase in the number of multi-brand specialty stores in the region, improving lifestyles of the consumers along with the increasing per capita disposal income of the consumers. And then it just has like a list of like what the report covers. So like the um, price ranges covered, distribution channels covered, regions covered. So like they go to all these countries and write about like the skin lightning market there. So the report offers market share analysis of the top industry players, market forecasts, strategic recommendations for the new entrants, market trends, um, competitive landscaping mapping the key common trends. And I think what like that was just a brief overview but like what struck me about this report is how just like dry scientific like quote-unquote objective like okay this is what's giving money this is what you need to do to tap into these trends yeah exactly because for them it's purely like well what are the market trends and how do we follow those trends how do we make and it has nothing to do there's no consideration of like the ethics (laughs) i mean what yeah, there's just no consideration at all of what are the ethics or implications of the types of things that you're selling to people. And as you read from the report, the like the main impetus is simply you have to make people or people are becoming more conscious and aware of the way that they look. Um, mm-hmm. And so like as certain societies are becoming more aware of the way that they look, we can make them more insecure about the about the fact that they they don't look like X, Y, and Z. <laughs> we can capitalize off this. And this is the opportunity, like, they, they really like a market opportunity. Like, it, it's just, it's very cynical, but it makes sense. If you're a corporation, that is your literal job. <laughs> you're just there to make profit. Yeah. It's very, it's really, I don't know, just so fascinating. <laughs> it's really disappointing, to be quite honest, if anything. Um, I th- and in the article that I brought up earlier, there's a discussion around, um, like, all of these movements that kind of go in the opposite direction, like a lot of the, like, Black is Beautiful movements, or uh, even there are some that are, like, pretty skin is healthy skin, things mm-hmm. like that, like, kind of along the lines of what your father is talking about. Um but it also goes on to point out how a lot of those um, 
campaigns, they they neglect to think about the wider context as to why people are even doing this in the first place. Like, as much as you can tell any one person, oh, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, like, love the skin you're in, mm-hmm. yada yada, all that good stuff, everything about them in society, if it's demonstrating to them that, like, if you are not, if you're not pretty, you're not going to be privileged both in your um, romantic aspects, sure, but honestly, also in terms of your job and your career possibilities, um, and just general societal acceptability, um, then that really doesn't mean anything for someone up to come up to them and be like, you're beautiful. Like, what is that? What, and how is that going to increase my possibility of yeah. getting a job? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how, like, the the companies seem to always be towing the Because, like, you read this report and you're like, oh, my God, this is actually horrible. But if you, like, look at the ad campaigns that these companies released in the U.S., they're always towing this line. And they're being, like, body positivity, beautiful, uh, racial equity. Like, especially since last year, they're like, oh, we're committed to... But then they do that in the U.S. and then they turn around and they just make a bunch of money selling like skin whitening products all over the global south. It's literally so true. It's very fascinating. Like, yeah, <laughs> I think even in the article I was reading, they some of these products, like these products that are sold throughout the rest of the world, um, there were movements in the late two thousands into the maybe the early twenty tens that were like remove the word fair from your products um because a lot of them like i said were named things like fair and lovely or fair skin yada yada when fair is you know uh euphemism for just like whiter skin um but that doesn't change anything about what's actually in the product just to remove the word fair from your advertising or from the label um and so, like you said, I think a lot of these companies just tiptoe the line in terms of, okay, people are upset because we're telling them they need to have fair skin. So now we're just going to say it's glowing, but we're still going to sell you literally <laughs> the same product. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what difference does that make? Now, I feel like they're coning it behind the language of, like, science. Like, this is a scientific serum. It's, like, high tech. It's going to, like, do all these things. And because it's scientific, it's, like, politically neutral. It's, like, there's just no connotations. But they're really just trying to sell you poison. That's actually something that I wonder slash worry about as I am more interested in skincare (laughs) and things like that. Because I feel like a lot of products, besides things like just plain old um, sunscreen, but a lot of products that are aimed at, like, evening skin tone, like Mm. you said, or, like... Uh, removing dark marks and things like that. I'm like, how many of these products are just skin lighteners? Yeah. I don't know. Or, like, what is the overlap between just, like, a plain old skin lightener that they would sell as, like, a body lotion and in terms of the, the, the products that are included in that or the content in that and some of these, like, face creams that are, like, supposed to help with evening skin tone, et cetera, et cetera. And, like you said, they're sold more as, like, a, a science. And especially now, I feel like, the people who people who are into skincare a lot, it's like they talk about like ceramides and like niacinamide and all these things. And I'm like, I really don't know what <laughs> I don't know what it's doing, <laughs> but everyone is talking about it like it's so good. But at the same time, are they actually good products or are they just meant at lightening your skin and therefore creating an even skin tone? Right. And it's not like 
skincare was invented by Shiseido. Like, yeah, we we've known like humans have taken care of their skin for millennia. Using sometimes like very natural ingredients, just oil and like why? I mean, we know why. Come on now. <laughs> Under that, I think it would be interesting for us to just look a little bit at the history of these massive corporations. First, understand like how everything is connected. So I was like, just like doing some research. Procter and Gamble is an American company, and they really started during the. U.S. Civil War, like their big break was when they were supplying the U.S. Army with like cleaning products and uh, things like that. Um, and they were supplying the Union, and that's how they became a major corporation. So, like the government was like subsidizing them and funding them. And today they're like a really me- mega corporation. They sell all of these um, skin lightening products. I guess it's not that interesting, but I thought it was interesting how like war was such an important factor. Shiseido was also started by a former like general in the imperial japanese army and he um shiseido just played a really important role in like nation like japanese like nationalism and they kind of like worked in tandem with the government of like uh enhancing like asian beauty or like a, a east asian like um aesthetic but still, you know, very within a colonial mindset because Japan was colonizing all of these countries during the time. And Japan is one of the main, like, mark or, or like main, like, sources of all this marketing for skin lightening and whiteness in East Asia because Japanese people have, like, typically, like, lighter skin. Um, and then there's uh, L'Oreal, which is a French company, which was founded literally by Nazis. Literally, like, if you Google. <laughs> The founders, they they would host in their headquarters, like in their headquarters, they would host meetings for, um, what's the name of this group? It was this French anti-communist fascist group. And the headquarters for Laurel were the same headquarters that they would use for for this group. It was called um, La Cagoule. And the founder was Eugene Schooler. Schooler? Um, and he was... He, he was a member of that group. Um, they supported the Vicky regime and they were pro-fascist. They were, they were actually violent. They like actually had some like, like attacks. And this was, was this like also in the thirties ish then? Yeah. It was like in the early 20th century. Like they literally, this group literally like firebombed synagogues. Like really? they were super anti-Semitic. And that's, like, the origins of L'Oreal. And it started as, like, hair products, but L'Oreal is also a major company that sells skin bleaching. And then there's... Like you said, it's a lot of these companies that we know in the West. Like, Shiseido is a very big uh, skincare brand in the West. But the things that they do in the Global South are so... vile. (laughs) So... Yeah, the last example was um, the Royal Niger Company, which you might know as Unilever. And if you have listened to which song on Ah, Burna Boy's album, um, which song is it? We need to put it in the playlist. Can we play play the expert? I feel like he explains it better than anyone else. Uh, I think it's Another Story. Um, It's like the intro. It's, yeah, Another Story. Okay, I'm going to just play it. Is that okay? Go for it. Um, Let me turn on the... Play another story by Burna Boy.
Okay, so that's just a background on how Unilever started. They literally just bought a whole, like, part of a continent and used it to extract resources to create products to sell back to that continent. I think the thing that is really important for people to understand also um, in terms of, like, the history of businesses and honestly the history of governments quite generally is this history is really not that old (laughs) like it really isn't people people who are alive today and are like really not that old witness the independence of their own countries and some of these things like in terms of i don't know when i really don't know what is the timeline for like when um Unilever (laughs) bought Nigeria but um these business practices they're really not that old and they really impact the way that people view themselves and Mm -hmm. their worth on a global scale Mm -hmm. um and I think that is something that people need to remember just it applies to so many things it applies to the beauty industry it could apply to I don't know the it could apply to Jim Crow in the U.S. and just, mm-hmm. like, the division of, of black people and white people in the United States. It could apply to redlining and housing and all of these different historical measures. They're maybe decades old. Like, n- some yeah. of these things, yeah. not even a century. Which really makes you think, like, if it's not that old, it means that we have lived in a world where these... Not to glorify, like, a past, because I don't know what was going on then, but we have lived in a world where this wasn't true. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it also means that we could possibly live in a world where this isn't true again. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I guess not to be a nihilist about things, <laughs> to flip it on its head, like you said, there's there was a time where some of these things were so innately con- like baked into our society in terms of like the different values of people and the naturalness of like the west owning the east as like a concept um and it takes creative and imaginative thinking to break out of those cycles and there's a possibility to break out of the cycles that still exist today like we just think creatively yeah it, it is so crazy how like this company or, or like you know like all of these companies wanting to go and plunder <laughs> like turn the page turn like 300 pages 300 years later and we're talking now about like instagram filters and like all of these things build onto each other and it's so inculcated in our heads like we think that our perception of beauty is so just like natural and like but how yeah like how do we look beyond it how do we see outside of those standards i I have no idea i don't know i think a lot for many people it's you have to at least be conscious. I think a lot of people are simply unconscious about the ways that all of these things that we've been fed by the media and just by societal standards actually affect the, the way that they perceive other people. Um, and so at least to be knowledgeable about like the, the preferences that you have as it comes to beauty or like what you see is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It does not, is not created in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, though I think just to at least be conscious and to know 
that those things have lineage and history is a good place to start because then you can start to begin thinking about how do I actively combat those things then in my own mind and be conscious about it because all of these things that we're viewing as beautiful or desirable a lot of them we just do subconsciously don't even think about it yeah um in one of the articles I was reading as well, they mentioned like a very old psychology test called the doll test, which I don't know if you have ever heard of it, but it was like they presented, I think either white and black dolls or dolls of varying shades to children, like literally like probably five to 10 years old and would ask them things like which doll is smart and which doll is beautiful and which doll is et cetera, et cetera. And always these more positive um associations of like intelligence beauty other desirable traits were assigned to the doll that is lighter skinned um and all of these things are things that children have absorbed already like (laughs) pre-puberty like they and i don't those are things that they wouldn't even be able to verbalize like why but subconsciously they're already baked into the child's perception of the world and also their perception of themselves that's really sad it is really sad, yeah. It, you really... Because, like, by your... by Okay, by age four, what have you heard? You've seen your parents talk about you. You've seen your peers talk about you if you go to preschool. And you've watched, what, TV, maybe? Or, like, seen billboard ads. So it has to be one of those things or all these three things. It's true. Yeah, I... I it's really... Yeah, it's just really sad. <laughs> So at at the point that you're even like for us now that we're in our young 20s and stuff and you actually have the opportunity to think consciously, oh my gosh, all these beauty standards that I, I think are normal or that are normalized to me, I have already two decades worth of subconscious imagery and um, things that I've heard that I need to now work to undo. It's definitely one of these things that like it it takes time and it's it's better avoided at the root. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Um yeah. I do think maybe as a society we're getting a little bit better at thinking about those things as like constructions and just understanding that a lot of these so- social norms are complete constructions. But uh, I really do wonder if we'll ever get to a place where, like you said, we just, like, abolish abolish beauty standards altogether. Yeah. yeah. Or, like, where pretty privilege is not a thing. Or your, your value is not based on the way that you look. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but I really hope. <laughs> yeah. I, for, like, when I first heard of that, like, idea of, like, abolish beauty standard, it, like, made me so uncomfortable for some reason. And I think it's because you don't, it just, you don't have a default you don't you don't know where to work from anymore like i'm someone who i really care about fashion like i make my own clothes and like if you abolish that you 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 don't have a base anymore like where do you work from mm-hmm. so it's true it yeah. does require creative thinking what's going to replace or how are you going to work from how are you going to work now yeah that's very true Is there any other topic that you still wanted to cover? Um, well, you touched a little bit on the fashion industry. I don't know maybe if this is getting too much into a whole other set of stuff because we only have a couple minutes left. <laughs> um, 
but in, in terms of like the fashion industry and its approach to beauty maybe i guess for you do you think that you've seen any significant changes or like any ways in which the the fashion industry is ta- changing as it relates to beauty and what is viewed as desirable or who has an opportunity to be presented mm-hmm. i think it's changed it's something that always um evolves over time it's like trying to keep you know like we talked about like now it's like hot to be like racially ambiguous but still like white passing and it for me personally from what i've experienced in the end the driving force like it's it's um it's this chicken and egg thing again like who drives what? Is it trends that drive the industry or the industry that creates the trends? Is it bottom up or top down? Um, but that doesn't matter that much because what keeps the engine running, like the premise that keeps the wheel turning, is profit. It's ad revenue and profit. What, like, if, you know, there are a lot of fashion companies out there. 30%. Actually, I, I don't even know the exact numbers, but I, I guarantee to you it's at least 20% of all the operating costs of these companies is ads it's all ads it's 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 not because your product is good it's not because like you you have good practices it's literally advertising if you want to make it in the fashion industry you just has to you just have to advertise so the natural conclusion like if you have to advertise in a world that prioritizes these features you will have to like that's the literal definition of advertising you have to you have to tap into them. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to create like create a lifestyle. Um, yeah, make people think they that they can attain that inaccessible beauty standard simply by buying your product. Mm-hmm. Wow, now I'm really sad because think about it. Also, think about like how the fashion industry it's 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 about standardization. It's about mass production. It's about being like this top. I want a thousand, a million people to have this top. Yeah. And feel hot in it. This same top that I made. So you require the homogenization. What's the word? Homogenization. You require people to be, want to be the same. As opposed to like tailoring and like custom made, which is how people make clothes for um, a long time. On the flip side, I could buy this top for $10. Um, so <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, it's... that gets into its own, own dis- could get into its own discussion of like fast fashion and just, yeah. yeah. But it's just the once, yeah, it's the whole unraveling thing. Like, I think once we do start unraveling these ideas of beauty norms, it, it's everyone is going to go down. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And just have you just have to think about how you want to structure a society um, in a way that doesn't incentivize these vicious norms and stereotypes. I think maybe that's a perfect place to end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, wow. Now I'm like really thinking about me <laughs> and the clothing that I like to make. <sighs> Anyways, um, in case you just tuned in, you were listening to Hot Girl Theory. With welcome, welcome, and Share, and we air on Mondays at 11 p.m. We'll be posting this episode on um, Spotify as well. And we're going to be playing some music after this so you can access our playlist at WKRB.com. And uh, before we go, there is a spring drive currently happening. And PRB is 
raising funds so that we can continue being the community-supported independent radio that we are and to continue delivering this amazing con- content. Um, not to, like, tie myself up, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, PRB is the oldest college radio station in the U.S. It is totally independent. We have an amazing history of supporting local artists, local bands, local movements, and it's the type of music that you really can't hear anywhere, or content that you really can't hear anywhere else. Not Definitely not in corporate radio. And I guess in the spirit of Hot Girl Theory, um, let's, I want to just talk a little bit about what corporate media is and um, let you know that PRB is really, I, I personally really believe in PRB because I do think it, of it as a really great alternative to um, just the very saturated news and music media that we have out there. Um, before we get into Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, just um, so you know, pledge.wprb.com. That's the website. Um, you can go on your phone, you can go on your computer, and then you can do a monthly pledge or a one-time pledge. We really value the monthly pledges because it is a long-term sustainable um, form for us to keep going in the long run, not just this year, but in the many years to come. And And if you do the monthly pledge, you get a free WPRB t-shirt, exclusive content. Only for subscribers. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it it as like a subscription, like a Patreon subscription, a Spotify Spotify subscription, um, that's exactly what um, is, is... is going on <laughs> and we really just wanted to, ch- to thank we have five donors that we really really wanted to thank on air um for pledging um we wanted to thank alex um in uh, from east brunswick we wanted to thank colin from willow grove we wanted to thank todd from princeton aaron from haddon township and tommy from highland park thank you so much for your support this means the world to us and um, we are really excited to keep doing radio and for you to get your exclusive t-shirt. So thank you so much for your donation. And yeah. Oh, also before we, should we do it before or after? I have a, just a little like infographic of like literally like how many companies are owned, but how many news outlets are owned by how many corporations, how many billionaires? Say it, go ahead. Um, so, okay. So here are the numbers. There are... 15 billionaires that own most of the media companies and you might know them you have uh michael bloomberg we know michael bloomberg he owns bloomberg bloomberg news rupert murdoch news Corp, fox news we have um the cox family which owns the atlanta journal constitution it's just one family that owns um 14 broadcast television stations 59 radio stations we have our friend jeff bezos he is not a friend and he owns the washington post he literally just bought it. He was like, I'm, I'm going to buy it. Like, you're so powerful. You're like, I just, I'm just going to buy a newspaper for in 2013. Yeah. You have Shadow, Sheldon Adelson, who recently died. He owns uh, Las Vegas Review Journal. You have Carlos Slim, who owns Ching, who's, that's the biggest, he's like one of the richest people in the world, and he owns one of the biggest um, telecommunication companies, and he has the biggest stake in the New York Times. So just think of like all of the news medias that you're like we trust and how we put so much weight on like objective news, professional news. Um, but 
the fact that they are owned by like 15 billionaires and six corporations total like comcast walt disney company um at&t like really makes you think like you're not are you gonna have news outlets saying really relevant important to dissident whatever free speech when they're owned by the very people they were originally meant to criticize okay this is this is too this is too sensationalist but (laughs) it is a crazy (laughs) world out there um yeah and i guess we can just close with another excerpt from noam chomsky manufacturing yes In their analysis of the evolution of the media in Great Britain, James Kieran and Jean 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 Seaton (laughs) describe how in the first half of the 19th century, a radical press emerged that reached a national working class audience. This alternative press was effective in reinforcing class class consciousness. It unified the workers because it fostered an alternative value system and framework for looking at the world and because it promoted a greater collective confidence by repeatedly emphasizing the potential power of working people to affect social change through the combination through the force of combination and organized action this was deemed a major threat by the ruling elites one mp asserted that the working class newspapers quote unquote inflame passions and awaken their selfishness contrasting their current condition with what they contend to be their future condition a condition incompatible with human nature and those immutable laws which providence has established for the regulation of civil society the result was an attempt to squelch the working class media by libel laws and prosecutions by requiring an expensive security bond as a condition for publication and by imposing various taxes designed to drive out radical media by raising their costs these coercive efforts were not effective and by mid-century, they had been abandoned in favor of the liberal view that the market sh- would enforce responsibility. One important reason for this rise in scale of newspaper enterprise and the associated increase in capital costs from the mid-19th century on- onward, which was based on technological improvements along with the owners, increased stress on reaching larger audiences. The expansion of the free market was accompanied by an industrialization of the press. The total cost of establishing a national weekly on a profitable basis in 1837 was under £1,000, with a break-even circulation of 6,200 copies. By by 1867, the estimation startup cost of a new London daily was £50,000. The Sunday Express, launched in 1918, spent over £2 million before it broke even, with a circulation of over 200000 Similar processes were at work in the United States, where the startup cost of a newspaper in the New York, in New York City in 1851 was $69,000. The public sale of the St. Louis Democrat in 1872 yielded $456,000. And the city newspaper, the city newspapers were selling at from six to $18 million in the 1920s. The cost of machinery alone, even of even very small newspapers, has for many decades run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. In 1945, it can be said that even small newspaper publishing is big business and is no longer a trade one takes up lightly, even if he has substantial cash cash or takes up, takes up at all if he doesn't. Thus, the first limitation on ownership of media with any substantial outreach by requisite large size of investment was applicable a century or more ago, and it has become increasingly effective over time. In 1986, there were some 1,500 daily newspapers, 11,000 magazines, 9,000 radio and 1,500 TV stations, um, 2,400 book publishers, and seven movie studios in the United States, over 25,000 media entities in all. 
but a large proportion of those among this set who were news dispensers were very small and local, dependent on the large national companies and wire services for all the local news. Many more were subject to common ownership, sometimes extending through virtually the entire set of media variants. Today, so it's this only all it billionaires. Just underscores how expensive it is to have a platform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so we really appreciate WPRB just for giving us the opportunity to have a platform at all. And, yeah. you know, do local news, do things that are different, talk about theory, <laughs> hang out with your hot girlfriends. Exactly. <laughs> That's all we want. No billionaires, no, no overthinking. So thank you so much. You just listened to Hot Girl Theory 103.3 WPRB Community Supported Independent Radio pledge.wprb.com and I guess now we'll go to the fun part we'll play some what's the playlist for this episode the vibes for this episode are self love (laughs) and destroying um, colonial mindsets of beauty (laughs) 